We're going to do a little bit different this morning, so we're going to do the Old Testament reading, and it's not the one you have there. We're going to do the Old Testament reading in the sermon, you'll understand why, but go straight then to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, about page 1018, if you're using that blue Bible, let me begin in chapter 1, verse uh, verse 21, and then we'll read through chapter 2, the very first sentence of verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 21 through, through chapter 2, verse, first part of verse 13. For no prophecy, talking about the Old Testament prophets, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if... God did not spare angels when he, they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning cities, uh, turning cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example for what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So what I've read to you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. We thank you, good Lord, for your correcting, directing word. May the hearts of all of us be amended for our good and your glory. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting, we're doing a series through First and Second Peter called Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. We've completed First Peter, and we are now up to our eyeballs in Second Peter, where we're at. And there, so there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide, just basically an outline with lots of space. And if you're going to a care group, there are questions there that some of them will probably be asked at your care group. So here's where I want you to go right now. Hold 2 Peter, but I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter 21. I don't remember what page it is in your blue Bible, but 1 Kings 22. Excuse me, 1 Kings 22. 
1 Kings 22. And then we will go right back to 2 Peter. Think of this story as very illustrative of what Peter is dealing with in 2 Peter 2. Here you have two kings. You have a great king, a godly king, Jehoshaphat, down in Judah. He really loves God. He is whole hog for God. He just is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. We should all feel happy then, right? So we have some company there. He's just not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He's rather a knucklehead. And so here he is with Ahab, who is a rotten-to-the-bones pagan king of Israel. And they're together, and they've uh, pulled together their uh, alliance. And so here's how it begins. There were three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of this king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead, and Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. I'm going to throw my lot in with you, you pagan king. And that's what he's doing. This is why I say Jehoshaphat was godly, but kind of a knucklehead. And so what happens is he asks for a word from the Lord. And so Ahab brings 400 and something of his prophets to gather around. And they're led by a fellow by the name of Zedekiah. And what happens is that Zedekiah speaks in the name of Yahweh. He even quotes Scripture. And it's down in verse 11. Zedekiah, the son of Chenina, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says Yahweh, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And to all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Go fight that battle. You'll be victorious. All the prophets were saying that. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? This is how you knew Jehoshaphat was a godly man. He says earlier, he says, do you not have a prophet of Yahweh here? He knows these guys are the bad guys, and yet he's still aligned with them. Go for here. And so Ahab had said, well, there's Micaiah, but he never says anything good about me. Sure enough, here comes Micaiah. Micaiah comes up, he's drugged up, he's dragged up. And he says, uh, just go, you, you'll just go. And Ahab says, tell me the word of the Lord. He says, okay, I'll tell you the vision I saw. The Lord in heaven with his throne in his courtroom was asking all of these spirits, what can we do to get Ahab to be destroyed? And one of them says, I know what to do. I'll deceive. I'll, I'll speak words of deception through his prophets. Oh, good. The Lord says, go do it. Now that sounds kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. But do you notice that Micaiah saw that and Micaiah is telling Ahab, your prophets were deceived, right? The Lord did that, but now the Lord who's deceived them or used an instrument to deceive them is telling you about it. Why would he tell him about it? Because he's giving Ahab an opportunity to not go down that path. But he's also giving Jehoshaphat the opportunity to be smart a little bit. And so Ahab says, see, I told you you'd never say anything good about me. 
So he ships Micaiah back into his cell and he says, just feed him on limited rations of bread and water till I return. And Micaiah says, if you return, then Yahweh has not spoken by me. If you know the rest of the story, Ahab did not return. So keep that story in mind. I think it's extremely illustrative to what we're looking at in 2 Peter. Now, 2 Peter. Peter here in 2 Peter 2 gets into the thick of it with the predators and pillagers. Now, either he is using Jude, sometimes this causes people trouble. Either either he is using Jude, if you read 2 Peter 2 and Jude, you will notice that they're almost, somebody's quoting somebody in large, extensive swaths. Either he's using Jude or Jude is using the second second chapter of 2 Peter. It doesn't really matter, it's not unusual. It's actually a very biblical approach. Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12, shows up in Psalm 108, verses 5 and 12 through 12. Obadiah the prophet, his little 25 or 26 verse letter, shows up almost verbatim in Jeremiah 49, verses 7 through 11. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, draws heavily from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. The four gospel accounts quote the same stuff over and over again. It's not a big deal. And I mention that because I've run across people who think that that's proof the Scriptures aren't inspired. Wow. It's okay that they took from each other. Here's how you should look at it. If Jesus thought it was so important to quote it twice, what do you think we ought to be doing? Sitting up on the edge of our seat saying, this is serious business and we need to pay careful attention. That's what's going on. And so Jude and 2 Peter 2 join forces because they're addressing probably the same kinds of predators and pillagers, if not the same group. This morning then, we will work through 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through the first part of verse 13. We'll work through the rest of verse 13 to the end of the chapter next week. But chapter 2, verses 1 through 13a tells us quite a bit about these zombies spreading the disease. As Peter informs us, of who they are and where they are going. Who they are and where they are going. I hope those are the two points that showed up in your sermon notes. So who they are, verses 1 through 3. First off, Peter is setting up a contrast. I tried to emphasize that to you as I was reading the last part of chapter 1. The end of chapter 1 describes how the Hebrew prophets all pointed to Jesus by the inspiring guidance of the Holy Spirit. And now here he presents the contrast, the alt-prophets, I'm going to call them, the alt-A-L-T. I'm going to call them alt-teachers, A-L-T. The alt-prophets, the false prophets, the populist prophets are set up in contrast. Here's how it begins. But false prophets also arose among the people. These, quote, prophets, end of quote, presented from their own interpretation. Their words were produced by the will of man. Their program and prognostications arose from the reigning popularity of the population. It says, among the people. From among the people. This is where they got all of their source of authority and their message. They spoke, dear friends, what many wanted to hear. The many, the people 
who to quote the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, having itching ears accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the midst. And so, there were alt-prophets in the Old Testament, false prophets who set themselves up in opposition to the Spirit-inspired prophets. Go back and read 1 Kings 22. That's what Zedekiah does. He actually smacks Micaiah in the face and challenges him. He is opposed to the true prophet. And so the false prophets often set themselves up in opposition to the Spirit-inspired prophets. So as Peter is bringing this up, then we are being alerted that there will be alt-teachers, A-L-T, alt-teachers in the churches. This is how he puts it. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. A couple of quick thoughts before we keep moving here. Notice the future tense. Just as there will be, not might be, not could be, no, it's a certainty statement. There will be. Now, Peter's not looking down the road necessarily 150 years or 300 or 3,000 years down the road because as you read 2 Peter 2, you start noticing his verb tense moves from the future will be to they are, they are, they are, they are. He's talking about people whom he's having to deal with right then. So the will be is a certainty statement. There will be. There, just like in the just like first Peter, you will what? Suffer. There will be false teachers. First Peter was all about the pressure from outside. Second Peter is all about the perversion that's rising inside. There will be. So don't doubt it. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. There will be false teachers. For those of you then who were in our class this morning, the adult class, you already know that that last statement, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, heresies, that that Greek word, hierases, which is where we get the word heresy from, is actually a very highly sectarian and schismatic word. Therefore, the heresies that Peter is concerned about are destructive for numerous reasons that he's going to list here in chapter 2, but they're also destructive because they destroy the unity and the harmony of God's people. If you want to know more, this morning's class will be online, good Lord willing, tomorrow, and you can listen to it, and I would recommend that. Further, dear friends, these folks that Peter is addressing or or is uh, referring to here, these false teachers, old teachers, these folks may claim to follow Jesus, be followers of Jesus. Just like Zedekiah in 1 Kings 22, speaking in the name of Yahweh. I mean, he's using God's personal name like he knows him, like he's a follower of Yahweh. Even quoting Scripture, no less. And so these false teachers, these alt-teachers, may claim that they're followers of Jesus, but in reality, they deny, Peter says, they deny the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. How did they deny the Master? Well, probably through declaration, proclamation, but there are other ways, which is really the big focus in chapter 2 here. To put it in Paul's words that he wrote to Pastor Titus, the words that we read before the confession of sin in Titus 1, verse 16, 
They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. These people profess that they were followers of Jesus, but denied Him by their works, as well as their words. I mean, action, as we always say, speaks louder than words. That makes good sense. Very much in line with what St. Irenaeus once said about the Gnostics in his day, and J. Gresham Machen said about the liberals in his day, in the early 20th century. They use our words, but they don't mean what we mean. They use our words, but they don't mean what we mean. And how do you know? Because their actions show you what they mean. And Peter Hare says it's sexual or sensual conduct. So notice in the rest of verse 2 and 3, some of the other aspects of these alt teachers. They, first off, persuade, persuade folks to follow their sensuality. It's interesting in 2 Peter 2, it doesn't tell us very pointedly what sensuality is here, which gives us the impression that he's talking about more than sex. But that's how often we like to think of sensuality, but it means more than that. And you know that because he never really defines it as only one thing. So it's this following your own passions and desires, which therefore sensuality could be anything from politics to pot to a pint of beer. I mean, I'm just telling you, it could be anything like that. Whatever gets you. So they persuade folks to follow their sensuality. Their actions, number two, their actions bring blasphemy upon the way of truth. Sometimes you cringe when that happens because you, there are people that will do things, they'll say they're Christians, and they will do things that are immoral. And then you hear your co-worker say, well, if that's how Christians are, I don't want anything to do with it. Their actions cause non-believers even to blaspheme the way of truth. Third, they're greedy. In fact, that will come up again down in verse 14. So this is a big, big deal for these alt teachers. They're greedy. They love their money or whatever else. And so in that greediness, he goes on to say they're exploitive. They exploit. They use people. They manipulate and play with people and use them as a means to an end. They exploit people and the, and the tool they use to do their dirty work is speech. They exploit you with false words. And so... They are those whose condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. We hear all of that in first in Second Peter chapter two, verses one through three, and inevitably somebody will ask, Why such negativism in the Bible? Why is Peter being so dark in his depiction of these people? I mean, surely there's some good you can pick up out of there somewhere or something, right? So why the dark depiction? I think we need to come back and talk about this a moment. Because I think we get it wrong often. Why the dark depiction of, those, of these alt teachers? It's meant to do a few things, first off. It's meant, first off, to warn the faithful. To warn the faithful. Even to the point of giving us guidelines, just in verses 1 through 3 guidelines for discerning faithful from faithless teachers. Giving us guidelines, a grid, discernment grid, to be able to distinguish between faithful and faithless teachers. 
But then it's also meant to help those who have already begun being infected by the disease, the viral infection of the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's meant for them to be able to see the symptoms, that they're already exhibiting some of these symptoms, and to say, I don't like this disease, and so it's time to seek treatment. And they run and seek treatment. It's meant for that. Thirdly, it is putting the alt teachers on notice. It's saying to them, you have been identified. Now you have a choice. Before, you know, they're flying under the radar, but now they're exposed and now they have a choice. Either continue in their perversion and deal with the eternal consequences or repent and turn back to the one from whom comes grace and peace. That's the reason for this dark depiction, or the reasons, world. And so Peter has now identified who they are. He then delivers a bone-breaking hammer fist strike. Those of you who have ever done karate, hammer fist. That's a powerful punch. He now delivers this hammer fist strike and describes where they are going. Where they are going. And that's verses 4 through the first part of verse 13. So notice then verses 4 through 10 first. Verses 4 through 10, here Peter uses an if-then approach. An if-then approach that capitalizes on the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. And notice that, and this is just kind of a side note, but I need to, to point it out. Notice that Peter, does Peter defend his use of the Old Testament? That is not a rhetorical question. Is Peter, does Peter defend his use of the Old Testament? No. He uses it and quotes it as God's Word. You notice that? Every New Testament letter holds to the Hebrew Scriptures as God's Word for God's people in every age. Little soapbox, let me get off now. And so he piles then on example upon example for them specifically to convince us that his conclusion is conclusive. And he's going to use if, 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 then. So he begins with angels, and I have no idea specifically when he's referring to, but it's very likely sometime between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. If God created all things very good, that means even the devil was very good at one point. Sometime, sometime between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, the devil changes, and that would be the fall of the angels with him, some of them. I assume that's what he's referring to. So here's how he begins. So if God knows how to keep the fallen angels in their prison in hell and Tartarus, the only time the word Tartarus is used for hell in the New Testament, if God knows how to keep the fallen angels in their prison in hell and the chains of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment, And if God knows how to bring the watery deluge of judgment upon the ancient world while preserving Noah and his family, and if God knows how to decimate the godless, greedy cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if God knows how to rescue righteous Lot, who was surrounded by a population fueled by their passions and sensualities, if, 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 then God 
knows how to rescue, to protect the faithful, and he knows how to hold the guilty accountable for their deeds. We're at a point where you've heard me say it before, and it's right here. What's good news for some is bad news for others. Protecting his people is good news. Against whom? Those who would destroy them. They're going to be held accountable. Bad news. The point of the good news, bad news thing is so that those who know that they're receiving bad news, what might actually say, I don't like this bad news. I'm going to run to the good news. That's the hope. So what's good news for some is bad news for others. Therefore, dear friends, where the alt-teachers are going, this is his point, why he's bringing this up, where the alt-teachers, the false teachers are going is not undeserved. It is not undeserved, but it is intensely earned if they continue down that path. You have to put that conditional statement in there. If they continue down that path. So now, my friends, while Peter is aiming at where these false teachers are going, there are a few subjects we need to pick up along the way. To begin, in these if descriptions, Peter is describing more about the alt teacher's characteristics. For example, down in verse 8, Lot tormented his righteous soul, quote, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, end of quote. Whatever else one says about them, these old teachers show themselves, show that they have thrown off the restraints of the law to pursue their own course. Their lawless deeds. That means no law. They have thrown the law of God out. This is the only law ultimately that matters. And so they have thrown that out. Their lawless deeds to go pursue their own course. In fact, he will specifically call them in the next to last verse of 2 Peter. In verse 17, he will call them lawless people. And so if they have thrown off the restraints of God's law, then what are they imbibing and indulging in? What is their north star? What is it that is directing their moral compass? Somebody that I don't necessarily recommend to you, but I loved reading him many years ago. R.J. Rushton, he wrote a book one time called Infallibility, and an Inescapable Concept. Where he pointed out that everyone has a rule of infallibility, the final rule of faith and life. Everybody, even the biggest atheist. We all have a guiding star. We all have whatever it is that pulls our needle to our north, whatever that is. And so that's the right question to ask. If they're going to throw off God's law, then what is it that is tugging their needle to their, on their moral compass to a new north? What is it? And he tells you here, it's down on verse 10, they, it's the lust of their defiling passion, the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. The two go together. 
The lust of defiling passion and despising authority. I'll have no God tell me what to do and I'll have no preacher tell me what to do and I'll have no old book tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Despising authority. Following their defiling passion. Oh, They are their own authority. They are their own personal savior. They are their own guru. They are their own spiritual advisor. In other words, they are a law unto themselves. And that's what the word autonomous means. Autonomos, self-law. They're a law to themselves, ruggedly autonomous. Therefore, they are part of the disease, part, chapter 1, verse 3, part of the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. They relish what is ailing and sickening. They agree with some, many of Disney's characters and are following their own heart. And in their autonomous overreach, they are brazenly rebellious and insubordinate, bold and willful, verse 10 and 11. What does that tell you? It tells you that their destination then is not undeserved. It is the destination of their own doing. Their path is their own self-guided path that leads to self-destruction. Destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoings, verse 12 and 13. Not governed by God's law, they are ruled then by their own libidos and lusts. So they therefore respond and react with the irrationality, the irrationality of animals and the instinctual drives of lizards and chickens. And we have lots of that going on around my house, and their names are Raleigh and Sydney, our dog and our cat. They have given us all kinds of object lessons of how animals are very irrational and driven by their, their, their instincts, right? Why does your dog roll in deer poop? Go ask him or her. Why does your cat want to roam and go take on the bully down the street, the tomcat down the street, and lose every time, but still wants to get down there and go do it? Right? You're just like, do you, do you animals have no sense? And they go, yeah. <laughs> oh, no sense. Got it. And that's why Peter says there, in 12 and 13, he says they're just like irrational animals, driven by their biology and their instinct. Now, on the other hand, what is Peter doing here? He's giving us three sets of actors here who are considered role models. Noah. Noah, who was surrounded by the world of the ungodly, verse 5. Think of it. Noah, surrounded by a majority culture of the ungodly. He's the herald of righteousness. He was one who declared that what God desired and, what, and the way of God, and he didn't go with his urges. He didn't go with his yearnings. He didn't go with... Well, this is what everybody else is doing. He didn't imbibe in his sinful passion as so many others around him did. 
the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, Genesis 6. Instead, what did Noah do? Noah was one who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The second role model is Lot. And Lot was in the same boat, so to speak. Oh, that was a funny pun. I like that. Lot was in the same boat. He was surrounded by a majority who were living out their sensual conduct. Verse 7. But Lot showed that he was not one of them because he was distressed by their sensual conduct and was tormenting his soul, his righteous soul, over their lawless conduct. His neighbor's actions and his city's directions grieved him deeply, but he did not take their self-destructive path. And then lastly, the role model actually laid out for us all the angels. The angels who are greater in might and power than those alt-teachers, those false teachers. And what do they do? In humility, Peter says, they do not pronounce. In humility, they do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against others before the Lord, even against the false teachers before the Lord. Unlike the false teachers who make bold and brash claims against the heavenly beings, the glorious ones, And so these are the three role models that have a a different destiny from the alt-teachers. These three that are laid out before us are actually receiving praise from God. Praise that will outlast the false teachers, by the way. We're still reading the praise that God has bestowed on them 2,000 years later and more. They receive praise from God while the alt-teachers, if they continue down their path, will only reap what they have sown and reach the destiny that they have been building. Well, my friends, it's more of that dark depiction, and we have to ask, why this dark depiction? This dark depiction of where these alt-teachers are going Again, it's meant to do a few things. It is meant, first, to warn the faithful and give us perspective. To give us perspective. It will sometimes feel like the crowds are going this way and maybe we need to do this for our own sake and our own financial well-being and our own social standing and so forth. But this gives us perspective. Oh no, there is an end. There is a destiny. It's meant to warn us and give us perspective. Far better to be like Noah and Lot. Far better to be like the angels in their humility. But then, my friends, this dark depiction is intended to help any who have begun being infected by the viral infection of the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. To see the end result of choosing to continue to be part of the disease and not part of the remedy. Turn, return, and you will find God whose steadfast love endures forever, willingly, happily nursing you back to health. That's the point, part of the point, the meaning behind this depiction. 
Very much what Yahweh says in Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. The further this dark depiction is putting the alt teachers on notice, they have been identified, and their destination is known, and it is being made known. Now they have a choice. It's very much like 1 Kings 22, when God has Micaiah tell Ahab, your, fault, your prophets are actually being deceived. They have been intentionally deceived to bring you to your destruction. But you're being told this, Ahab, because now you have an opportunity, Ahab, to turn around. Go for it, Ahab. No, I won't. It's meant to show them where they're headed and to give them an opportunity to turn. God is a God of mercy. And so we will go to hell, or some will go to hell, stubbing their toes on mercy stones the whole way down. That's what you see going on here. So either continue in your perversion and deal with the eternal consequences, or repent and return to the one from whom comes grace and peace. That's what this is all meant to do. And so, dear friends, questions to ask ourselves. Am I using the guide that God has given us to work my way through popular preachers and teachers and blogs and videos? Am I using God's guide to discern? Am I engaging this divinely given aid to healthy discernment? Or am I just going along blithely and carelessly ingesting whatever sounds good and feels good, whatever it is that boosts my esteem. Brothers and sisters, the intention of the whole letter of 2 Peter is for us to come to see the value and the need to stick with the prophets and the apostles because the prophets and apostles stick us to Jesus. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Apostles and prophets stick us to Jesus. And that's how this letter ends. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and for the day of eternity. It's here, my friends, we will find ourselves stuck to Jesus with the apostles and prophets stuck to Jesus. It's here that we will find ourselves able to remain immune, able to remain immune from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It is here, stuck to Jesus, that we will find grace and peace flooding us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so we end here today. We will pick up the rest of verse 13 through 21 next week. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you that you are not afraid or ashamed to tell us the bad news. You give us opportunities to run from it and to run to the good news. Thank you that you do not shy away from displaying the bad news so that when we see the good news, we know it is really, 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 really good news. We thank you, Lord God, that you know how to rescue the godly from trials. 
We pray, Lord, that You would help us to rejoice in Your corrective Word that is also grace-filled. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.